Welcome to the Management Insights podcast series hosted by McGraw-Hill. My name is Debbie Clare, Executive Marketing Manager for our management portfolio. Today's topic, be yourself, lights, camera, Zoom. Our guest, Hillary Schlamer from Arkansas State University. So glad to have you joining us today. I'm so happy to be here, Debbie. Thanks for having me on. So Hillary, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm an assistant professor of management and entrepreneurship in the Neil Griffin College of Business at Arkansas State University. Um, my research background is in creativity and innovation and complex problem solving. I kind of sit at that intersection between HR and OB and then with a little bit of strategy playing in. So I, you know, I like to play the field. Um, and in my spare time, I really love to walk my dogs and, and sing and read and do things that aren't just, you know, research in the professor life. And I love that you love dogs as well. I have a, a few chihuahuas. So <laughs> now I'm really excited about today's topic, Hillary, because I think everyone can relate to getting nervous about recording videos, and it can often cause some undue stress on our lives. How have you been able to kind of calm down about, say, recording lectures or Zoom and really be yourself? So we were almost a little bit lucky at Arkansas State in the in the College of Business going into the pandemic because we'd been doing a fair number of online classes already. So I'd had experience teaching asynchronous online classes before. The synchronous thing was new. So the Zoom atmosphere was new, but I had sort of a stable of online videos for video lectures and things like that. And it took a while for me to kind of get the hang of it at the very beginning. I was a fairly early career professor. Um, and also, since this is a podcast, you all can't see me. I'm also young. I'm 32. And um, I don't. Typically, people tell me I don't even look that old. The most common comment I get when I introduce myself as a professor is, oh, wait, you're a professor? Question mark. And so there's a lot of you know, visual anxiety that comes with being a young woman on camera and things like that, that I kind of had to figure out how to deal with. And a big part of the way that I started to handle that anxiety and approaching those things is realizing that dealing with that is part of what I want to teach. I want these 19, 20, sometimes 30 or 40 year olds to be comfortable with who they are. And one of the best ways that I can do that is model that for them and try to just show that I'm comfortable in this modality. And so I had to keep working on getting used to seeing myself and listening to myself and making those missteps and being okay with a couple of ums or tripping over my words here and there and starting to get used to, to those kinds of things as I recorded videos and interacted in all these virtual environments. So viewing it almost as a service and a teaching opportunity for my students was a big part of how I got over my own anxieties around that kind of stuff. And so you really are kind of emphasizing that you want to have that authenticity and be who you are. And that's really important when you're creating your own course materials and being that role model for those students as well. So how do you go about doing that? And, and why is that so important? 
And I think there's there are a lot of messages for for young people, young women in particular, but young men as well, or or young non-binary individuals mm-hmm. that there's like a prototypical person you're supposed to be when you're, I mean, presenting yourself in real life, but especially in those virtual environments, those social media environments, things like that. I think that that's really unhealthy. Um, I don't think we'd be a terribly interesting society if we were all the same, like Kim Kardashian style human, um, all power to her. She has a super powerful media empire, lots of money. Awesome. But I don't think that that's all of us. And the world wouldn't be very interesting if we were all Kim Kardashian. Right. So, I think that that's so important and part of the way that I try to bring that to my students is try to make them more comfortable. And in order to do that, I had to get comfortable with myself. Right. And we are nerds. Like, uh, who are we talking to? We're talking to a bunch of college professors. Right. And that's just what we do. Like we nerd out about stuff and that's part of our charm. And that's okay with me. Like, I don't have to be cool in your classical like leather jacket motorcycle kind of way like that's not that's never going to be my vibe that's never going to be my scene so part of the way that I think that I'm cool is I'm comfortable in my own skin and with who I am and I try to bring that into a lot of different spaces Um, and by being authentically me it removes a lot of the performance anxieties, which also leaves me room to make mistakes, to be wrong, to have opportunities for my students to teach me things that I don't know about, because I don't have to be like the all knowing, you know, floating green face in the sky in the Wizard of Oz, right? I have opportunities to be wrong, to have deficiencies because I'm a real human. And I think that that's a helpful message for them. And oh my gosh, is it an anxiety lowerer for me? Now, I agree with you 100% there. I think being genuine is the number one priority and students will see that come through with you. Um, Now, how can we get real, right, with your students while still maintaining the professional, say, boundaries? And this is tricky. So I taught for the first time as a fresh 23-year-old. I taught a human resources class in graduate school. I had taken that class once um, and I was teaching 21 year olds. Let me tell you, terrifying Um, and trying to figure out how to create those boundaries because like I'm supposed to be in charge, but I'm really basically your peer. That taught me a lot about how much power you just kind of get because of the circumstance. And because of the position, all that legitimate authority that we talk about in like a French and Raven power typology sense, it's really there. And so long as you don't completely dismiss the trappings of that, a lot of students are happy to go along with that. Now I teach in the South, technically the Mid-South, but like there's a really heavy um, cultural emphasis on uh, respect for authority figures and respect for elders and things like that. And not that I super classify as an elder, but I'm at this point elder enough than most of my students that I get some of that too. So that helps keep some of the boundaries there. And the fact that that's so strong lets me be pretty authentic with my students. So I bring my personal experiences into the classroom, um, not like in an inappropriate way, but I'll talk about, you know, my experiences growing up, the challenges I had as a kid and how that's informed my worldview. And that's something that they can really start to relate to, but I can present it in a way that isn't me like complaining about my childhood 
or sometimes I'll bring in like, these are challenges that you encounter in a management situation, but they also have correlations for your romantic relationships. And I can talk about my marriage, but it doesn't have to be in a way where it's like super clear that I'm trying to use the classroom as therapy or something like that. Cause you can absolutely overstep those bounds, but bringing those things in and making it personal and making it real and making it clear that you're a real human that has other things going on in your life can help your students really get in touch with you and also with the material. It helps them start to bring their personal lives to what they're learning and not just their work lives. And in order to maintain those professional boundaries, I just make sure that I'm not being inappropriate. You always want to make sure with somebody that's a subordinate that you're not like putting a bunch of emotional work on them that's really yours or anything like that. Um, And obviously, you know, you don't talk about the details of things like sex or money or stuff like that. Um, You keep those things to yourself because that's part of how you maintain that. But I found that even though I have at various points in my career been younger than some of the students I'm teaching, they're usually very happy to maintain a lot of those professional boundaries with you. Um, And it's, it's almost difficult for them to start to leave those behind after say they've graduated. And it's, it's a lot easier to maintain them than you'd necessarily think. Now, Hillary, um, let's dig in further on how do you go about dealing with creating these different videos? When do you use, say, asynchronous videos versus synchronous videos in your teaching? Absolutely. So these to me are like completely different tools, even though they both have video, like completely different. Um, Asynchronous videos for me are the thing that doesn't require interaction, which for me is lectures. Um, If I'm making a presentation or giving a lecture and it's very much a unidirectional delivery of information, then an asynchronous setting is really where you want to be. That way they can go back and rewatch them as they're studying for exams. I have had students, so in our particular corner of the state, it's not uncommon to have students that are commuting more than an hour to class. And so sometimes they'll download these videos ahead of time and they'll listen to them as they drive in, that kind of stuff. And so the flexibility that asynchronous video offers is really awesome for lectures. It also means you really only have to record it once, which is great and a huge time saver. Synchronous videos are fundamentally placed to interact. And I really, I've been to enough conferences that are uh, video-based now, right, that are virtual. Um, I have developed a loathing of unidirectional delivery of information on synchronous video. It's, It's sort of the, like, modern equivalent of this meeting could have been an email. This Zoom meeting could have just been a YouTube video or whatever platform you like to use. Um, And it drives me a little bit nuts. I don't feel like it's super respectful of anybody's time when you do that. Um, And it's also just inflexible. And it's not, the students are going to tune out the same way that you might worry they're going to tune out with an asynchronous video if you're lecturing on a synchronous setting. That's what I have learned. And so I use those synchronous settings for when we're going to have interaction. We're having a discussion. We're doing a case. We're bringing in a guest speaker and we're asking them questions, that kind of stuff. But if it's really like, doesn't matter that I'm in, in the meeting or not, then that's a time for an asynchronous video. So you definitely want it much more experiential is what you're trying to say, right? Interacting. Absolutely. And so how do you go about prepping for these different settings or formats as you see it? Yeah. So a lot of times with an asynchronous video, many of the ones that I've recorded are versions of short lectures that I used to give in the classroom. 
Um, sometimes if I'm actually teaching face-to-face, which doesn't happen super often anymore, um, I'll even still give some of these lectures. So they're, they're materials that I'm familiar with that I've kind of gone through. I have my slides prepped. I use them as my lecture notes to kind of cue what we're going to talk about. Um, I've talked about things, you know, several times before, so I feel comfortable with how that's going to go. Um, I know what anecdotes I want to share, that kind of stuff, because I know what's helped students in the past and what sticks with them. Occasionally, I'll have to record an asynchronous video on something that I haven't really talked about before. Maybe I'm being asked to prep something new. Maybe I'm guest speaking for somebody else's class. Maybe it's a whole new class prep for me, or I'll do um, like speaker series introductions and stuff like that. And in that case, I usually outline what I want to say, and then I prep it the same way that I personally prep for like academic presentations. I'll talk through it three or four times, sometimes more than three or four times, and just to give myself a vague sense of a script in my brain, but also as I talk through the same set of notes or presentation slides a few times, I'll talk through them three different ways. And what that means for me is that when I'm in the moment speaking and I get to that point, if I get lost, I've got three different paths to get me back where I need to go. Um, and, and one of them's probably my favorite. That may in fact be the one that I forget in the moment, but I have two that'll work just fine. And so I'll talk through those things a few times before I hit record. I typically only record once unless I have like a significant interruption or I make like a really big stumble right at the beginning. Um, but part of being authentic, I think, is just embracing the fact that we stumble sometimes. When I'm prepping a synchronous class, it's totally different, right? Because you're prepping for interaction. So if I have a guest speaker, I'm prepping the questions that I'm going to ask them. I usually provide those to them beforehand. If I'm prepping like a class discussion, I've got discussion questions, but I think about, you know, what are the conversations that I want to have in that space? And then I work backwards to build questions that'll get us to those. And I absolutely have like teaching cheats and, and things that I have built into my classes that'll provide me with questions that I know they're interested in and things like that that. I've got little cases and little scenarios we discuss, that sort of stuff. Um, teaching cheats that you just mentioned? Oh, so there's um, an approach to discussion boards that I adopted, and it goes along with um, a uh, technology that students have to subscribe to called Packback. Um, but instead of providing them on a discussion board with like, here's a case, go discuss, or like, here's a news article, go discuss, or whatever, I have started asking them, as you reviewed the chapter for this week, maybe watched the video lecture, what are the curiosity questions that came up? So in my principles and management class this week, we're talking about control systems. And so I say, hey, you've just learned a bunch about control systems. What are the things you're curious about? And occasionally I'll get stuff where it's, I don't really understand X, but more often it's, okay, but like, when would you actually use a bureaucratic control system? Or how do you tell when it's gone too far? And they come up with these really great questions that um, allow me to just pull those straight into my classroom. I give attribution. I'm like, hey, Tony had a great question this week. And so let's talk about it. And they're already sort of having that conversation a little bit offline on that discussion board platform and um, bringing that into the classroom. You know, then they've got a little bit of starting and Tony will usually be the first one that jumps in and is like, and here's what I was thinking with my post. And it creates this great like back and forth and we get to have really interesting conversations. Something I've tried to do as I've continued to mature as a professor is give the students a little bit more free reign in the conversations we have. 
So I'll have plans that we're going to discuss these five questions and we'll get to question two and somebody will be like, but let's talk about micromanaging and how does that relate to management theory? Like, what is it coming from? We had that conversation in class last week and that's a great question. So let's go there. And I, as I've matured as a professor, kind of like giving myself the permission to go off on those related tangents, but there's still a little bit tangents rather than like stick to the lesson plan. That's been really helpful, especially with some of that authenticity and some of the fluidity that you have to have to be in the virtual environment. Well, what I love by uh, what you just said is the fact that you're you're building on the excitement in the classroom and you're taking it in the direction of where they want to go. So it's relevant for them and they're much more engaged. You're yeah. starting to bring them back on track when you're ready to move them forward, but it's, it's okay to do that, right? And I love that uh, you're doing that. The other thing that I really love is the fact that when you were talking about scripting, you said that you have an outline and you've rehearsed it a few different times and it may go down maybe three different paths. Some folks may be so regimented to say, oh no, it has to be this way. And you said, you know what, it's okay. Because then again, it's genuine, it's authentic. As long as you're getting across the core points overall that you're looking to accomplish. Exactly. So I did, I did competitive speech in high school and there were different ways to go about it, depending on what events you were doing. And some of the events were very intentionally like off the cuff. And you would start with your basic notes that maybe you hadn't even practiced depending on the nature of the event. Sometimes you had, you know, 10 minutes to go into a corner and talk to yourself for a while and and, and talk through how you wanted to do that. And then I also did events where you memorized a five minute script. And you delivered your five minute script and there's multiple pathways to success here, but I don't have the time or the patience to memorize the script for a dozen 12 minute video lectures. I just don't, I have too many other things to do. And I also, I don't know that it would be that useful or that good of a use of my time. So I, I really try to create that flexibility and rely on, you know, my own spontaneity and verbal competency at this point. No, I love that. And so how do you feel about seeing yourself on video and hearing your voice? Because I will tell you, a lot of folks are like, wait, that's not what I thought. (laughs) And, and maybe a little shocked. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, and as I kind of said at the beginning, like, as a, a, a young woman, when I, especially when I started these, there's a lot of expectations about how you look and how you sound and how you act and all of those things that kind of get layered into every time you catch yourself in a mirror um, or every time you see yourself on video. And let me tell you, it was definitely weird at the beginning. Um, you know, I have been around long enough to remember when we did all this on Skype, which Skype, you know, still exists, but people don't use very often anymore. And it was definitely like tricky to get used to that. But now we're on video, you know, calls all the time. I do WhatsApp calls and Facebook video calls and Google meet calls with friends throughout the week and things like that. So part of it is just sort of inoculating yourself against it and getting used to it. And I did at the beginning when I was on Zoom meetings pre-pandemic, but I'd be on Zoom meetings with co-authors. 
I kind of intentionally tried to inoculate myself against that by watching myself on the video. And even now, like as I'm having this conversation with you, we're on a Zoom call and my eyes are spending a lot of time sitting on my image because I'm keeping track of like, am I in frame, that kind of stuff. But I worked really hard to get comfortable enough with how I looked that I don't worry about that part of it. So I'm trying to make sure I'm in frame. I'm trying to make sure the upper half of my body is visible because that's important for communicating in this space. And I'm a big hand talker. So I need to have sort of like elbows and forearms because otherwise I just look like a floating pair of Muppet hands. Um, but I, I just spent a lot of time engaging with that and like leaning into the fact that I was uncomfortable with it. And as far as voices sounding different, I think what they say is that like the resonance in your head changes the tone that gets transferred through your ears. I'm not that kind of scientist, so I don't know, but that's what I've heard. And um, it's always a little weird when I watch my videos back, but I just try to move past it in the same way that, you know, when I listen to podcasters or whatever, I try not to sit there and think about vocal fry or anything like that. We get really critical of our own voices, um, of the voices of women. The whole vocal fry conversation is super fraught, right? And trying to get past that with myself um, has been important and trying to model that just like I'm comfortable in this space, even if at the beginning I was faking it a little bit has, has been helpful. And I've, um, I was, I was joking with you at the beginning that like when I record a video lecture, I think one of the things I try to do is make sure my hair is brushed and put a little bit of lip gloss on, but I try not to, to go super duper far beyond that and stage it unless I'm recording one that's supposed to be really, really professional for like external university communication or something like that. So that's just part of being comfortable with yourself. Uh, and there's work that goes into that. And I'm not going to pretend that there's not, but it's, it's good for this setting. And it's also just good for you in general and your own peace of mind. So I know Hillary, we're coming down to the wire on our time. So any last words of advice you would give our listeners today on, you know, being yourself, lights, camera, zoom, whichever direction you go. <laughs> I think one of the lessons that I have learned over, over um, the last couple of years is that people pay dramatically less attention to you than you think they do. And while that sounds like a terrible thing, it's actually really freeing. You know, we talk about this with teenagers who have like terrible acne and we're like, I swear, nobody actually notices that zit on your forehead, but you, but seriously, nobody does. And that happens in your video lectures too. You are going to be your biggest critic here. You're going to be your biggest critic for how you look on Zoom. Nobody else is paying attention to you. Your, vin your window is like probably the size of like a quarter on their screen. If you're teaching a big class, maybe mine right now is the size of a three by five card. How many details can you see? Not very many. You don't know what kind of hormonal acne I've got going on or if my hair is a little frizzy. You can't tell. And the truth is, even if you could, Debbie, you don't care enough to pay that much attention to me. And that's not a criticism of you. That's just people. And so embrace the fact that nobody's paying that much attention. They're paying more attention to the things that you say and to the general like emotionality and tone that you have in the conversation you're having rather than exactly all the little fine details that you're trying to fine tune and that you're spending hours and hours and hours and so much stress and anxiety trying to fine tune. Yeah, we, we always are thinking about ourselves and we are very um, self-critical of ourselves. I'll agree on that. So, but uh, take a step back and breathe and relax and have some fun with it is what you're trying to say. 
Exactly. Be yourself. Honestly, why would you do anything else? It sounds like a lot of work that you don't need to do. So Hillary, thanks so much for sharing your perspective, experience, and advice with our listeners today. Check back for future topics and spread the word to your colleagues about our podcast series. Why? Because learning changes everything. 